Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another Moving to Live podcast. We are a podcast along with our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, that believes movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. Our goal or idea for Moving to Live is to have interviews that are of interest to movement professionals and amateur aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. And we work to break down the knowledge silos so that people across the movement spectrum can gain knowledge, maybe come up with questions, or figure out things that can either help them move better or help their athletes, clients, or patients move better. Our guest today is somebody that I probably have known for, I think, maybe 20 years, maybe 22 years, late 1990s. And he's another person who I met through my association with the National Strength and Conditioning Association. He's one of those guests that some of my guests come from word of mouth. Some come from me being out on a run and saying, you know, why haven't I asked this person before? So this was one of those ones a few weeks back, I realized after kind of being reminded with a couple of tweets or retweets that he did, it's like, hey, this is somebody who'd be of interest to listeners of Moving to Live, especially because we're in the middle of the COVID pandemic and anybody who is an endurance athlete is struggling with, am I motivated to train? Do I wanna train? Do I wanna do races if they exist? Do I not wanna do races? What do I do? And our guest today is a longtime endurance athlete as well as a longtime endurance coach. We are with Will Carusis. He is the owner of Try Hard from Massachusetts. Will, thanks for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. Happy to be here. Happy to be here, Ben. Pretty, pretty excited. It's cool to, to get to connect with you. It's been a while since we've been able to do some things and uh, looking forward to this. Looking forward to this. I always get nervous because now, now you've built me up. So now I'm like, I don't know. I can't live up to this. But. Well, well, we'll make it easy for you. I always start the Moving to Live podcast with asking my guests who you are. And by that, I define you're in an elevator, you're, you're carrying a bag that says try hard on it, or you've got a t-shirt on that says try hard and the elevator screeches to a, a halt and somebody says, so, you know, what do you do? What's your 
positive elevator spiel of what Will Carusis does. Okay. Um, so I coach endurance athletes. Uh, my, my focus is triathlon, all forms of cycling. And uh, we're somehow along the way that also morphed into ultra slash mountain running. Uh, so those are, those are kind of my, my primary wheelhouse. I don't have a specific specialty within those. I work with people of all distances in triathlon and, and genres, if you will, off-road, on-road, et cetera. Um, and I've, I've spent the last, gosh, uh, 25-ish years uh, working in this field exclusively. Um, I came out of endurance sports. I got interested in doing this via that route. And uh, for, for a good while now, my, my emphasis has really been on helping others that are competing. And I take part on my own, you know, just kind of for fun and, and occasionally will hop in an event, but for the most part, do my own thing. So right. yeah, I, I work with folks, um, newbies to national, uh, national level competitors and international level competitors. Uh, my wheelhouse is what I would say, mostly the kind of middle age group folks, the, you know, folks who have a real job and a family and want to get better at sport and use sport as a really cool, positive, productive part of their life where they get to grow and get better health physically and mentally. So that's, that's really the wheelhouse, the other ends, the new, the totally new folks and the, the elite folks are kind of the, the edges, if you will. And I know, I think it's interesting. You said you still compete now, but you, you do it more for fun. And I know from looking at your, uh, your bio, you're somewhere North of 45, South, <laughs> South of 50. We'll just leave it in the middle there. You're a little bit younger than me, Four but it's, six. it's interesting. Uh, a, a number of people that I've interviewed for moving to live, it seems to be that those people who kind of get to 35 or so, especially in the endurance fields, and I've interviewed a, a number of them, they, you know, most of them, their goal is when you talk to them and say, well, you know, what, what keeps you still moving, you know, aside from what they do professionally. And they say, well, you know, it's just fun. So, you know, my goal is to be able to, whatever their sport is, swim or bike or run or do triathlons, because even though it is a competitive event, it's, pro it's a significant part of their life. And it's kind of like, look, if you've been doing it for 20 some years, you pro probably enjoy doing it and just going out for a mountain bike ride or training for a triathlon with friends is the version of social life that some people spend watching and watching the t football game on a Saturday afternoon. Sure. Yeah, no, it's, you know, it's funny. Cause I, most of my competitive career for myself was in cycling, mountain biking, <clears throat> uh, and then a little bit of triathlon. I, I jokingly call it at the end. Um, but the, the part to me that was always the coolest was just this idea that, you know, I can go out and just start moving, right? I can go, I can go from here to somewhere and I did it on my own. It wasn't like, uh, you know, I didn't get in a car, you know, my wife and I joke cause she's, she's run the Mount Washington road race a few times, but it's a similar mentality where, you know, you see people driving around and they have this sticker on their car up here in the Northeast that says this car drove up Mount Washington. We always laugh a little bit. We're like, what's the big deal? It's a combustion engine. How hard is that? You know? Um, but it's so cool to know that like I did that, you know, I, I rode my bike to Vermont or I rode my, I did this ride or I climbed up that hill or whatever. It just, it's a really good feeling. Uh, and it's, it's funny because, you know, as a competitive athlete, you're trying to be so focused and you need to have this consistent progressive approach. There's gotta be a lot more purpose to what you're doing and the sort of a, a broader rationale behind the steps you're taking to get somewhere. Somewhere along the line for me, it's, you know, my focus shift to helping people do that. And for me, it was almost more of a break when I could just go out and say, you know what? I feel like going for a mountain bike ride today. No, I feel like going for a trail run or, you know, two days later, you know, I think I'm gonna go for a hike today. And it wasn't, it, you know, it, 
not trying to be anywhere, in a, you know, not trying to hit any specific, specific finish time or something like that. So it works. Uh, so yeah, that's it's now it's fun too. Cause I get to actually take my kids mountain biking. They're only nine. Uh, I have twins, but they're starting to explore mountain biking a little bit. We got them new bikes this year, get them out. They actually ride a little bit of single track and it's just really cool to, to see them out there doing that. And you know, start wetting their whistle for it. Um, even trail, they, they trail run. That was organic. We didn't mean to do it. They just think we go too slow if we go hiking. So they just started running. Uh, and so now we're like, well, okay, well, we'll just start running. We don't even call it a trail run. We're just like, we'll go hiking. And then if they start running, we just start running and let them run until they want to stop. Uh, but it's, you know, it's kind of cool to have that freedom uh, and still be able to enjoy all these activities that are really fun. But sometimes, uh, you know, I guess that's just the easiest way to say it. Yeah. And I know in the NSCA and other organizations, they talk about long-term athletic development and not specializing too soon. But what you're having your kids do without even realizing it in a positive way is these trail, quote, air quotes, hikes, you're teaching them fartlek training, speed play. It's fun. Go when it, go hard when you want to go hard, go easy when it's easy. And there's not an organized practice per se, where if they happen to come around the corner and there's three deer, they can stop and you can point out interesting things to them. And I think that's a, a really neat way to introduce the next generation to the fact that, you know, just because you may not be good at ball and stick sports or want to be competitive, you can still enjoy being outside and getting your heart rate up. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, uh, this may be a wormhole that we discussed earlier. So I'll, I'll warn you, but, um, so my, my son, when he was uh, 13 months old, was diagnosed with a, a malignant brain tumor. And uh, he's, uh, you know, he's done amazingly. Uh, we are fortunate to live, you know, 45 to 60 minutes from Boston. So, you know, when you have one of the world's best cancer centers that close, you're just, it's random luck, but thank goodness, right? So, um, but we, it's funny because, you know, in the line of work I'm in, you would think that I would be more, I guess, intentional maybe in how we I looked at like what are we going to do for him motor wise because he he lost a lot of motor skill and uh what it came down to is my wife and I looking at each other and saying you know what he needs is he needs opportunity to relearn all these basic skills so we you know we invested in some stuff we got a a gymnastics like play mat thing and we'd take him to the beach so he could run around in the sand and try to, you know, play around in the waves. Now he's little, right? So this isn't like, he's not being a ninja out there, but he's out doing stuff. Um, and just tried to expose him to so many different things. And his sister got the benefit of that as well. Cause you can't, they're twins. You can't just, you know, leave one behind. And it, it sort of expanded as they grew and his skill became better and better to the point that like probably about three or four years ago, um, we really stopped trying intentionally to put him in situations that would challenge him and kind of put him into those spots where he's, uh, he's got to really explore and develop motor skills from a, you know, sort of a, we're going to try to do this perspective. And so we, we just have kind of grown with it because he's, he's expanded. And so now it's like, we'll go out and we do these trail runs that you were just talking about, but you know, you come around the corner Maybe it's a deer. I'm having a flashback to a trip to uh, Mount Rushmore, actually, where that literally happened to him and he thought it was the coolest thing ever. But um, more commonly for us, it's like we'll come around the corner and there's a really cool glacial erratic rock. You know, like a few weeks ago, we were on a hike. There's this rock. It's probably 15 feet high. You know, it's got a steep edge to it. They wanted to try to climb the dang thing. So we probably spent 20 or 30 minutes trying to get them to be figure out how to climb and get on top of it. They thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And, you know, you look back at it and you're just like, it's really awesome to see, to see these little kids who just think 
doing physical activity is just this normal fun thing. It's not necessarily, I have to get my cleats and there is no problem with playing soccer. I'm not trying to bust it, but you know, there's no, like, I have to do this organized structured thing. I just think it's fun to go do this stuff. I just think it's fun to go play around on my bike and try to do jumps in my yard or to try to, you know, ride along the curb and not fall off the curb on my bike or, uh, you know, whatever, try to climb a tree, try to climb a rock. Um, it's, it's really cool to see them just think that stuff is normal. Uh, just moving around. Uh-huh. And, and I, I hate to be one of those curmudgeonly old, old people, but, but it almost seems, and you and I are of similar ages, it almost seems what you're describing, what you're able to do with your son and your daughter. That's something when I was growing up, mom, mom and dad would say, you know, get out of the house and you just go in the backyard. And I was fortunate enough to grow up in, in a rural area and, you know, you would see these rocks and things. And it's just that innate curiosity. It's like, oh, I'm going to do this. And I, th- I think you hit on a point, you know, the unintentional play you're just outside exploring different areas you're not always visiting the basketball court or the soccer field or the baseball diamond not that there's anything wrong with that but here it is today's hike even if it's uh the same course that you've taken three times a week for the last three months it's entirely different because the seasons have changed there may have been erosion and i I think one of the things that you're, you're introducing the kids to i think i wish more people would is the fact that uh you know, there are all these neat opportunities out there. I know I, I had uh, two years ago, I herniated a disc in my back and I was not nearly of the athletic level you were when I did competitive stuff. But, you know, anybody who is an endurance athlete has a tendency to do straight forward and back activities. You don't do a whole lot of sagittal plane things. And I realized as I was recovering, you, do, you know, and you do do a lot of sagittal. I'm sorry, you do do a lot of, you don't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I told you I was fair game to embarrass if I missed <laughs> I know. Thank you. Thank you for the correction. You but I tag re- me, I'm sure. <laughs> but, I, but I realized that uh, things that you would take for common, take, uh, you know, moving sideways and balance things were non-existent. Like my balance to, you know, walk, walk across a log was non-existent. And I've intentionally, when I take my dogs to the park or I do trail runs, I'll purposely walk on guardrails and things like that. And it's amazing how quickly that comes back to something that maybe I was 10 or 11 years old. I did didn't do for 30 some years and it, and it came back. Now, admittedly, I'm less crazy about it now. And I look very carefully where I'm going to fall. And, <laughs> and there's some days as you probably know that you're just very stiff and sore. It's like, yeah, it just isn't feeling it today. We're not doing it. But when you're able to do it, it's, it's amazing how much concentration it takes but also how good your body feels as it adapts and becomes more familiar to doing those things. Yeah, for sure. And you know, it's, as you're saying that a couple of things that were flashing in my mind was like, number one, just how those motor programs seem to be remembered, you know, and you may not use it for a long time and it's kind of shelved, but then when you have to take that software out, your brain, you know, remembers how to, to do that relatively quickly. But the, the other part that bumps to me when you say it is I'm, I'm envisioning we were talking mountain biking prior, you mm-hmm. know, earlier here and, uh, I find like in modern day, I'm going to broadly call it cross country. I I don't mean that from a racing perspective, although that too, to a degree, Uh, but just sort of the general mountain biking people do when they want to go ride with their buddies or do the local shop ride or whatever, go to local, local state forest. Um, People are incorporating so much stuff that has, you know, bridges, teeter totters, drops, uh, banked curves that are, you know, wooden and things like that, which is all really cool and amazing. But I, sometimes I look at it and I'm like, man, you know, when I was 25, I would have done that in a flash. 
at 46 nope i gotta i gotta use i don't know if this i don't know if the video goes but like you know i gotta use my fingers to make a living i can't i can't take that and i got kid i like i can't take that risk uh and it's just funny how there are some things where it's like i'll, I'll look at it and i'm like yeah that's cool i probably could either learn it if i haven't done it before or relearn it if i haven't done it in 10 15 years i just don't see the value it, it, you know it's like that risk reward thing where it's like i can ride my bike and you know not take that chance you know, if I, if I do the six foot high bridge, probably fine. But if I fall off, I'm completely toast, you know, like there's no, there's no easy landing there. Uh, it's funny how, as you get older, those kinds of things go off. Cause I, I know if I was, you know, like I said, if I was 18 still, or if I was 20 or 22 or whatever, I'd see the six foot bridge and just be like, woohoo, let's do this and fly right yeah. over it. It's the, uh, the, the risk reward as you get older, you, you, you recognize what the risk is more. And when you, when you're talking about, uh, how modern mountain biking cross country, they're taking in more of these obstacles and things like that. We, I had the good fortune about a year ago to interview Elaine Tierney, who was one of the founders of dirt rag magazine. Oh my gosh. And who happens to be here in the Pittsburgh area. And, And one of the things that she said that I thought was, uh, was good is, you know, modern mountain bikes are so much easier to ride than when, what you rode when you were 25 years old. And although I agree with you, there's no way, even on a modern mountain bike, I'm probably going to go off a six foot bridge. The idea of going off a six foot bridge back when you were racing, probably having the first suspension fork and a, yeah. a wide tire was, you know, 1.8 or maybe two inches. Yep. You, you, the, the risk was significantly higher than the reward because the chances of landing it with that technology without tacoing a wheel or going ass over tea kettle are significantly uh, less than they are with a nice full suspension bike with a, a, a 2.4 tire on it. This, this is all true. The, the, the negative, I guess, for me, and I, it's probably a catastrophizing thing, so maybe I should work on this. <laughs> Gravity doesn't care. Right. Like if I go off the six foot high thing, my acceleration to the earth is the same on my fancy new, uh, on my fancy new Cannondale, uh, um, scalpel with, uh, you know, with, it's like, a, I think it's a 120 up front and a 110 in the back, sort of the not free ride, but sort of open trail version of the scalpel compared to the Cannondale that I last really aggressively was trying to race a mountain bike on, which had, you know, a 70 millimeter head shock and 26 inch wheels. Like you said, and you're, you were thinking like, oh man, I'm going to really, I'm going to reduce rolling resistance because nobody had thought about this well enough yet. So I'm going to go to a skinnier tire. <laughs> That's going to help. <laughs> Whoops. So we're talking with Will Carusis. He is the owner of Try Hard. He mm-hmm. is a longtime endurance coach. And I know from reading your bio, which, which we talked about before recording that I thought was kind of interesting is your dad had a, 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 a small period of time as a baseball player. And yet you gravitate, professional baseball player, and you gravitated towards endurance sports what was it growing up that caused you to say you know i want to be a a a bike racer this is what i'm going to do because it's not it's uh, it's not a common sport to pick up i mean it's it's relatively unusual and even back 25 years ago it was even more unusual because mountain bikes are not that old yeah no so i i think i mean i think there's there's multiple there's a lot to that right like i mean you know, like every, well, not every, but like a lot of kids in the United States. I, I grew up and my parents had me play little league. You know, I grew up in a small town like you. I think there was, at the time I was there, I think there was like 950 total people. The school was tiny, uh, more cows than people. Um, you know, and 
So there were maybe eight, eight boys or six boys or something in my class. I don't remember exactly, but you know, a small group of kids and, um, you know, so what do you do with your friends? You, you know, you just play ball sports cause it's what you can do. And, you know, because we were rural, we would also do stuff like capture the flag or just go roam around the forest or whatever. Um, I, I think, I think for me, some of it was just, you know, I was okay at those activities. Wasn't great. Was never particularly fast. You know, was never particularly quick. Um, you know, I could hit the ball. Okay. Um, and I'm old enough that soccer wasn't really a thing, um, until I was probably in high school, it was starting to pick up, but it would have honestly, even, even then in my small of a hometown, it would have never been a really big thing. And so somewhere along the way, despite not really being either of my parents thing, I picked up fishing and I totally still, I love fishing, but it, it was like, all I want to do is go fishing. I don't want to go to school. I don't want to eat food. I don't want to do anything. I just want to go fishing. And my parents were getting really sick of driving me around. And, you know, there were some places I could walk to, but um, they were getting sick of even driving me to drop me off. They were just like, you know, this is getting frustrating. So uh, mountain bikes were just starting to be a thing. This was, I don't remember the exact year. I'm going to say late 80s. Um, and they said, we're going we're gonna to get this kid a mountain bike and you can ride your bike around and go fishing. And so that's what I did. I, they got me a mountain bike and I started riding my bike around to go fishing. I had a really good buddy. He was kind of in the same boat, started doing the same thing. And after a year or two, we both were just having fun riding our bike and we would still do it to go fishing. But then we would be like, well, hey, let's, after we go fishing, let's go for a ride. So the riding to the place to go fishing, you know, would show us some new trails or we'd just get there and maybe we'd stash our stuff and go ride or we would bring our stuff home and then we would go ride again. And so this just became this really cool exploration. And, you know, when you're, <clears throat> you're a teenager, you know, whatever, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, all of a sudden you, know, you don't have a driver's license yet and you can hop on your bike and you could ride over to the next town and you could, you know, go explore places that you never even thought of. It seemed like such an amazing bit of freedom. It just seemed so uh, like uh, it was just like an adventure every time you hopped on your bike. And that, that sense of just, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. Started to also include things like, I can't believe I just rode over that or, that we rode up that hill. We didn't have to put our foot down or we didn't have to walk because it was really hard or, you know, and then you start racing a little bit with each other and not necessarily uh, a bad thing. It's funny. I, I, I think a lot of people with a very Westernized culture view competition or racing as a real negative. Like we're trying to, I'm trying to vanquish someone, prove my value, prove I'm better. And I always go back uh, to um, the book flow never going to say his name right by uh Mihal Csikszentmihalyi I believe is how you say it uh the the, psycho the psychologist um he has a cool note about the word competition it's latin root and it's I mean it infuses all of my work as a coach the latin root of the word being competire which means to search together so the idea of competing was not to vanquish prove value or any of that stuff it was to actually help grow through the help of your peers so those people you're competing with by that viewpoint are no longer sort of enemies. They're actually the very people who are helping you grow. And by default, your mission as a competitor is to also help them. And it's just a very gracious approach to the, to sport in my mind. So it's always struck hard. But when I reflect back on those early rides with this, with this guy, Chris, um, that's what it was. We were, you know, we used to joke and, and say, even, you know, even about other people, right. You go on a group ride. Sometimes it feels like you can ride harder against your best friends than you can in a race. 
And I'm convinced that it's ultimately sort of comes down to this root thing that when you're with your friends, there's just this inner value to that person. You can't really try to demonize them at all. They're your buddy. And so it's almost like I'm not giving up because you need the gift of working really hard, right? You need to earn this hill or you need to earn that single track. So it just became a really cool, positive vibe for both of us. And uh, ultimately his dad uh, decided he wanted to take up uh, endure, take up mountain bike racing. He had, he had ridden as well um, and been a really good backcountry skier, snowshoer, uh, sports like that. He was just one of those people, epic diesel engine full of old man strength. And he was in his 40s, so it wasn't really old. <laughs> but, but you know what I mean, if you've been around endurance sports. And um, his dad just, you know, he clearly had really good plumbing from a, uh, you know, genetic perspective. He ended up actually competing mountain bike worlds uh, at the master's level multiple times and uh, was an amazing uh, mountain bike, just ripped on the on the Northeast. And even when he would go around the country and race some different, at the time, Norba events, national events and stuff. Um, and so he would go out and he just pummeled us for years because we, we thought we were all that in a bag of chips and he would just go out and crush us. Um, and it just kind of grew from there. And I think I... I just I had that little community, right? And I don't necessarily even just mean the whole town, but that community of friends, you know, it started with that really simple, this is just really a joy to do. And it just grew into those other, into that other kind of realm, racing uh, mountain bikes, cyclocross on the road. Uh, yeah, it just kind of popped out of that. And I, similarly, my entire enjoyment of endurance sports came from that. You know, you live in a cold climate, you don't want to sit on the turbo trainer for five hours to get in a long ride. But you know what? We had good snow. I can open the door and go cross-country ski for five hours. So I'll do that. Um, and you just kind of found yourself enjoying the challenge of doing these activities and the the process, the, the places they bring you, the people you meet doing them. So it, I think I that's really how I, I kind of found my way into it. It feels like a longer answer than you're looking for, but... Uh, I, I like the comment on old man strength because everybody knows somebody who is older than them, who still somehow is faster than them in the endurance realm. And I, I think you, you can't can't overemphasize genetics or the or the years of of training. But I'm curious from what you're describing. Clearly, you, you enjoy movement. You you enjoy. You did a great great job, I think, of explaining how you got into into cycling, and it wasn't because somebody just bought you an expensive bike and said go race. But I could very clearly see with that passion that you become somebody who is, you'd be the old man and you'd be 45, 50, 55, still out there hammering on the group rides just because you loved being on the bike. What was or what caused the transition to saying, you know, I'm not just going to be a racer, but I'm also going to coach and I'm going to work with literally people ac across the spectrum of skill and ability. Yeah. So I, I think for me, this was kind of a, a this is going to be the most ridiculous statement of their entire conversation. I think it was a, a slowly, a slowly evolving rapid situation. <laughs> I, I was getting kind of burnt on racing. Um, I was racing a lot. I had hoped to hit, uh, you know, to maybe be able to reach a pro level. And I, the, anybody, if you know, cycling, I reached category one on the mountain bike. That's the closest I got. So I was competing at a pretty strong level, but I, I never got to that next spot. Um, I, I can look back and I can say, well, you know, I'm a good sized person. Um, that's part of it as an endurance athlete, if you're going to really get dicey about it. I also know, you know, I, I was around sports science, so I know some of my quote unquote metrics, you know, or what they were at that time. So I know I had 
good plumbing. I had a high VO2 max and things like that. Maybe I had the physical ability to potentially touch on that next level. What I did not have was my noggin. Um, I was, I had too much doubt and uncertainty. So when I would compete, there were, there were many times when I can reflect back and I can think of an event where I know what I needed to do, but I doubted that I could do it. Or I decided the risk reward, like the, the, the effort risk reward, not the risk of crashing. But like, if I do this and I succeed, I'm going to, you know, get upgrade points or I'm going to finish higher to the, you know, further to the front or whatever. But if I blow up, I'm going to like get shot out the back like somebody did it with a cannon. And if I stay here, I bet I can probably still get temp. And I would, I would trust that. And I would, I would go with that. And, and so in, instead of that sort of, uh, uh, eat or be eaten attitude, <clears throat> I had trouble with that. I had trouble with that next kind of n- that, that ability to take the risk and be okay with how that shook out. It's, it's uh, interesting. You say that uh, one of the people I've interviewed in the past is the uh, tracking cross country coach at California Inter- university of Pennsylvania, Daniel Caulfield, who was a world-class uh, 800 meter runner. And I know when you talk to him, he said, you know, physically I was a better runner than I was mentally. And I'm not yeah. sharing any secrets because he said it on the podcast. And I think it's intuitive that people who go in or very often people who go into coaching, if they've been fairly good, especially in endurance sports, that they have the wherewithal to recognize, okay, these are my limitations. I'm wondering, since you recognize that, I don't know if it was then or now that, you know, maybe what limited you from going farther as an athlete was whether it's mental or intellectual or motivation, whatever, the, whatever the catch term that happens to be big does that help you as a coach? Because you weren't somebody who was able to say, okay, I don't care what's going to happen. I'm either going to blow up or I'm going to get spit out the back a la uh, Steve Prefontaine versus, okay, risk reward. And maybe you can appreciate athletes uh, and their concerns and that makes you a better coach. Um, yeah, I do. I, I think, I think that experience made me a better coach. Um, I think that actually, honestly, that's a part of what drove me into it. Um, and I don't mean that it wasn't, it wasn't everything that got me involved with coaching, right? That for me, as I was growing as an athlete, but also as I was kind of getting into it, I did not like, wasn't it, I was not a big fan of like high school and uh, sort of approach to education. And my parents were both teachers. We lived near, <laughs> yeah, not good. We live near UMass. Um, and so we would, we would go out to that era in area of Massachusetts, the Amherst, Massachusetts area. And, like the grocery shop out there and stuff like that. <clears throat> and my dad to this day has probably the best, uh, the best library of books uh, that I like, I would rather go to his library than a university. I mean, it's just unbelievable, especially if you like, if you like to read stuff about thinking, um, you know, so, but he was my dad. So at that time I couldn't listen. Right? <laughs> um, but uh, they bought me a textbook at the UMass library, a uh, sports science textbook. And I just, started reading it for fun because they're in their mind. They're like, well, he likes cycling. So, and he likes training. So if we get him something that maybe, you know, if he gets interest and he starts to take off on this, maybe it'll help him get more invested in school. It worked by the time I got to college, didn't really help in high school, but what I'm it did, curious, do you remember the name of that textbook or the author? Uh, I want to say it was McArdle catch and catch, but I don't remember what edition or whatever. Yeah. It was a paperback like that thick. I don't know. Um, yeah, but um, so anyway, I, as I was going along in my 
you know, I started college, I was doing sports science and everything. And so people that I would talk to would know I was interested in that stuff. They knew I was in, in you know, interested in the training end of it. Um, I used to say I just wasn't as good as other people. So I tried to know more about training so that I could compete with them. And, I, you know, I don't know that that's really true, but I, I think that's the way I viewed it at that time. Um, and so I, I, you know, people started to know, people started to ask questions. <clears throat> So I would start to answer the questions and this was just as, you know, early internet days. And so I started saying, well, I could, you know, I could write a training plan for you and, you know, you know give it to you or send it to you or whatever. And I can remember the, the first ones that I made were like these massive uh, in some random spreadsheet, uh, <clears throat> you know, training plan that I'd like try to print screen and, you know, people would be getting 87 pages of paper. It was horrible. Um, but people liked it and it, it worked for people and it, it just kind of slowly built and I built and I actually, um, I briefly had uh, a couple of years, maybe year and a half, eh, probably a couple of years. I had this little business that I just called uh, Will Hughes's personal training and coaching. And I, I did personal training uh, at a local fitness center, local YMCA. And, uh, and then I would coach people. Um, it wasn't until, <clears throat> it wasn't until I uh, decided I was going to get married that I felt like I had to get a real job. Spent a few years doing clinical research. And for the most part, just coached a couple people during that time frame. Um, that's actually where I met Jason, who you have, you've also met. Um, he was also working clinically and that ultimately was the genesis for try hard and getting back to coaching, which is, was pretty, for me, it was literally like, by the time I had lunch on my first day working clinically, I was thinking, yeah, clinical physiology, not my jam. Um, I am not, this is not, I'm either a personal trainer or a coach, probably not a researcher. Um, so, uh, that was a couple of years where I was coaching and doing that. And then it was full, full bore, full time, uh, on the tryhard front, uh, that's 99 to now would be the full bore on the tryhard front. Um, and I know, I know now that, uh, if somebody starts coaching, it's much easier to get your name out there. We were talking a little bit before recording. I mean, there's social media, but you know, to set up a web page is pretty easy to, to, to get information across positive information across and social media is pretty easy. 1999, I, I remember uh, 1995 or six, I got my first email address and I thought that was great. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think around 99 was was when you first started to get a high-speed internet. But, you know, our, our phones right now are more powerful. So when you started out, how did you get, how did you get the word out and saying, hey, you know, I, I can coach you. And by the way, I can coach you for endurance athletic events. Yeah, so epic stubbornness um, is the best answer to that. Um, also youth, which comes with a degree of, I'm going to call this uh, happy arrogance, like just the belief that I can do this and you're just going to do it. And, you know, if, if I was my age now, I might look at it and go, what was I thinking? But, um, you know, at the time there weren't that many people doing it, right? There weren't that many other people trying to make a living as an endurance sports coach. And so, but we were at that leading edge of the internet. And so you could find some information on, you know, people like at the time you had like Chris Carmichael, you had Joe Frill. Um, there was a guy up in Vermont who really didn't ever have an internet presence, but I would argue is a wizard of it. I honestly don't even know if he's alive anymore, which is horrible, but he was a wizard of an endurance sports coach. Did a this, fair bit of stuff with USA Triathlon, Hank Lang. Oh, I was, I was thinking Rob Sleemaker. Oh, okay. Rob as well, right? Like <laughs> Rob had a bunch of stuff too. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I met him at a USAT coach ed conference, maybe 15 years ago. Uh, and that dude is so cool. And I, he has no idea how, like, to me, that was like meeting 
Michael Jordan or something like that. It was like, I read your book like 15 times. Like, you know, this is so cool. But, um, but uh, yeah, like people like that, I mean, Troy Jacobson, right? So you have these kind of, some of them whose names you don't hear that much anymore. Um, some of them you do, right? Obviously, Joe, you do, and to a degree, Chris Carmichael. Um, but, you know, being young and dumb, just like, well, I'm just going to contact these people and ask them how to do it. So that's what we did. We just reached out and some of them got back to us. Some of them didn't. Um, I remember Joe, actually, and he, I, I don't know if you ever talked to him. If you ever meet him, he would never remember this, I'm sure. Um, but he sent a pretty nice email that was just like, don't pay for marketing. Contact magazines and and or websites if there are, you know, if there is one and, and ask them if they want articles and write articles. And so we wrote all I, I, maybe 50, 60 articles for like triathlete magazine inside triathlon used to be a, a magazine back then. Um, trail runner, uh, running times, uh, the old Ironman triathlon website. It's uh, now kind of a, like it's, you know, it's sold through a few companies. It's a very different website now, but the one they had back then, um, a whole bunch of places like that. We just tried to, um, essentially, I don't want to say spam them, but I mean, I would say, you know, multiple times a year, we were sending articles to those places. And, you know, you get that, you're, you're, you can market it. If you go to a race, you can hand somebody a flyer that says as seen in, right. But you can also, um, you know, put a little tagline at the bottom of the article that just says, you know, you can reach this person at, you know, you can reach Will at, you know, whatever my email was at the time. And there you go. And so, the first few years, because again, you know, stubborn, young, able to do no kids, right? You can do this kind of stuff. Just kind of plug along at it and and get a person here, get a person there. And you get these little groups. Like there was a few years where I worked with, with uh, it started out with one guy from Panama and then it ended up like all of his buddies. So it was like a group of five or six guys from Panama and um, ended up with a couple of people in South Africa, um, people in like Washington state or the Chicago area, Canada. Uh, throughout New England. So, you know, you'd end up with these little pockets of people. You'd get one and then you'd end up working with several other ones. Um, so that was a big part of it. And then the, the other part was look around and decide, you know, are there groups, right? Like there's cycling teams, are there triathlon teams, are there running clubs and try to offer them material, whether it be seminars or whatever. And uh, ultimately ended up sponsoring a few teams and that that helped a lot as well. And so through those kinds of things, those approaches, we were able to ultimately build up a clientele. And it's, you know, like anything, um, you know, if you have, if you're working with two people, your word of mouth is not that big, but when you're working with 10, 15, then all of a sudden it starts to expand. And so pretty quickly we were, you know, we were operating well and that was it. It, it, it sounds crazy. I, I feel like I, over the last maybe five or six years, probably three of those, I didn't, I spent, I did nothing for marketing. I just, it was totally just word of mouth. Most of the time prior to that, probably the, the five or six years prior to that was mostly uh, word of mouth. Uh, the last couple of years, I sponsored a local race series. It just, I like the series. I like the guy. Um, I think it has led to a, a, a little bit of, it's definitely led to general marketing in terms of direct, you know, uh, clientele increases. I'm not sure, but uh, it just felt like the right thing to do. And I'm happy to do it. And are, are most of your athletes now, after having done this for 20 some years, are they mostly local or literally spread out across the country and, and or the world? So it's, it's less around the world than it used to be. Um, 
couple people outside the US, most everybody's in the US and probably right now like 70, 75%, I'm going to call it greater New England. So I'm, I'm incorporating, I'm going to call it like the Northeast. So like <laughs> Pennsylvania, New York, and then the, the main New England states. Um, that's the, that's the, the lion's share with the other folks kind of sprinkled around. Uh, and I, I think that's, I'll just say, I think that's evolved partly because, you know, <laughs> when you're, when you're kind of like, you're almost viewed as like old as dirt. Cause you've been doing it forever in a region, you, you know, that's, that's part of it. You just sort of have like an ingrained people know you. And so you have a rapport with the community. Um, I think outside of new England, something that I've definitely seen is like, you know, again, you know, 20 years ago, you could count on two hands, the number of people who are making a living doing this. Um, now there's, a, you know, every community has multiple people, um, just in the Northeast, there's probably, I don't know, 20 people, um, who are trying to make it a living. You know, I can think of probably 10 between cycling and triathlon who legit are doing this as that's, this is their full-time job just in new England. Um, so I think like around the country, you, you have this interesting phenomenon where when the, the endurance sports coach, somebody working with you via distance first became a thing. People looked at it and they were like, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing, I'm not, I don't necessarily have to see this person. So it doesn't matter. I'm not going to see them in person really. So it doesn't matter if I'm working with someone from, I live in Baltimore. And so they have to be from Baltimore or I live in LA, have to be from LA. They can be from wherever. Um, now people like the idea that even if they may never actually directly get to have coffee with you or go for a ride or whatever, they like the idea that that would theoretically be possible. Um, so that I, I think that feels to me like part of it. Beyond there being just a lot more people doing it, people like that idea, the possibility that they can actually, you know, directly be in touch with their coach before COVID. <laughs> yeah, I would I would be remiss when we're doing this interview not to ask, how has it changed as a coach since COVID started? Since I know just yeah. probably the last few weeks, few months actually, you've started to see some racing. But it's it's dramatically different than it was a year ago, where you know there was still air quotes life is normal. So when did yeah. you first become aware that this was going to be a factor for you, and how have you flip flopped or changed, or how has it changed your coaching practice? Um, yeah. So I, I, I'm lucky. I have I, I consider myself lucky because I sort of have an in house expert. My my wife I was an epidemiologist. Um, and then decided she wanted to be a clinician. So she went on and became a, uh, she's a, a nurse practitioner now. Um, so she works as a provider. And so I have this kind of interesting view from her angle. Um, so I knew pretty quickly that this was not going to be good. Um, <clears throat> and that it was going to lead to some, I mean, who knows exactly, but you knew pretty quickly it was going to end up being something that led to significant disruptions. Um, certainly in things that involve large groups of people, which endurance sports races are large groups of people. So, um, I was pretty concerned early on, <clears throat> I, you know, from a professional perspective, I, I was concerned about the health of my athletes. I was worried about the, you know, their physical and mental well-being because just like, you know, if you can't do the stuff you enjoy doing, whether that's, you know, riding your bike or running or whatever, seeing your family, it's, it's hard. Um, and it's very disruptive because people spend a lot of money. Like if you go to do an Ironman race nowadays, that's thousands of dollars. It's not, you know, it's not like back in the day when you could sign up for a triathlon and it was 75 bucks. Um, so it's a huge investment, not to mention, you know, if somebody bought a bike specific because they were doing this event or whatever, and they've invested in me as a coach. So they're spending a lot of money on this. That's pretty, that's heavy to me. Um, 
So I knew there was going to be disruption. I was curious how significant it would be, uh, especially once races really started dropping. I wondered how many people would just look at it and be like, why am I, you know, why am I paying a coach when I can't even race right now? So a <laughs> perhaps a positive to me was that I, I, I've tried through most of my coaching career and I would say increasingly the last five to 10 years, I've recognized that the people I work with are, they're, you know, free range humans. They're not, you know, there's a few that are professional athletes, but most of them are not and are not going to be. So I really view sport as this, this avenue in their life that can help them build a bigger level of wellness and that they can use that as a really positive tool to grow, not just as an athlete, but mentally and, and whatnot. So I've tried to approach how I coach people with that as one of the guiding sort of philosophies. And I, it feels good to me as I look at this now, because I've found I've actually had very little athlete turnover. And I, I think that a big part of that based on the feedback I'm getting is essentially because of that. People are looking at what they're doing and they're like, yeah, I can't race, but I can do stuff that's going to help me for next year or two years from now. And I, I still need to be a really fit and healthy person. So I need to keep doing this. Uh, you know, let, let's, do, let's go. Um, let's, let's do this. So, you know, in terms of the coaching end, it's been, or the business end of the coaching, it's, it stayed surprisingly steady for me. Um, racing, obviously for athletes, everything went out the window. Any long-term training outline that you had in place went out the window. Uh, you know, weekly structure for at points was like totally out the window. Um, you know, essentially you were revamping what you were going to do for people multiple times. Um, to, which certainly I'm fine with, but it was definitely a logistical challenge. Um, you know, that's a, that's a lot of rejiggering for people just, you know, over and over again, uh, to try to figure out and stay on top of, um, but the cool thing was that we ended up coming up with ideas like, Hey, look, you know, the goal is to get fitter, to grow. And you know, things that might be there for next year or the year after. So how do we, you know, how do we do this? And we came up with this idea of doing you athlons. So people would say, you know, okay, well, I was going to do half, you know, half Ironman, or I was going to do a you know, marathon, half marathon, trail race, whatever. So we would come up with some unique challenge to them. Uh, you know, I had, I had one woman who decided she was going to do a, an Ironman, but she was going to do it over multiple days. She didn't want to do an Ironman this year, but she thought over like five days, I'm going to accru accru accrue the Ironman distance. And that'll be like kind of a, a testing ground to see how I feel with that kind of volume. Um, I had a couple of people that did their own half, uh, half Ironman. They literally created the whole thing and, and executed it that way. Um, half marathons and various other things, time trials on the bike. So we just came up with these really cool things. It became fun for people because they were, you know, they were still, they had this target out there that they were working towards. Uh, one woman actually uh, teamed up with her brother and they, they went and did a, a half uh, down in New Jersey, excuse me, down in Maryland uh, in an area that they know, they both know. And uh, so they did this sort of physically distanced uh, brother, sister rivalry, half Ironman, which I am very proud to say uh, the woman I work with won. And, you know, to have uh, family bragging rights until such race was to happen again, which is not scheduled, right? She's got the awesome bragging rights forever. So that's cool. Um, so we would do stuff like that. Um, the, the, the guy who I, I have one guy who's right now, who's a very talented mountain bike racer, um, legitimately has, you know, the, the potential to be a very high level ultra distance racer for sure. 
Um, he's already, he's really a second year of competing at an elite level, and he's consistently top five or so in, in national level events. But he's still so new because he came into racing late, relatively speaking. So he didn't have that sort of network of like people who know him uh, to try to get the name out there and all the all this sort of political uh, stuff that you need, like you know, as a to to race at the elite or pro level. It's not just about having the fitness. At some point, you also you know once you're competing there to make it to that next stage, you got to be able to kind of have that network and expand that network. Uh, to get the right doors open, so to speak. Um, his results have done a lot of that for him, but I, I was very worried for him because I, I'm thinking like he needs to race. Like he needs to have his name in front of people's radar so that they can see that. Luckily, there were enough races. He did a few this year, had some very good results, and that's worked out well. Um, definitely funny to see you know, like see a podium picture and there, you know, they have like you know, the, the guy, you know, he's in the middle and then there's like a guy eight feet over there and the guy over, you know, it's great. It's what it should be right now, but it's it just, uh, you know, it's a funky time. Um, so that's been, that's been wonky kind of like looking at his situation in particular for me has been a stretch because I, that realm is tougher for me. And I, I just, uh, I found that to be a challenge because I, I'm like, man, I, I really want him to be able to race. I really want him to be able to get his name out there, you know, at some point, if you get too old, uh, you know, if you get you get to that age where it's like, okay, you're one of the fastest people, but I got a 20 year old who's just about as fast as you. The upside's higher. I'm going to sponsor that guy. Um, so it, that part for me has been, I don't want to say uh, pressure, but it's almost felt like, man, I just I I want to see him able to compete more uh, because of that end of it. There's there's that aspect for him. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's been a, a wonky year. People looking at next year already, trying to plan it out. Do you think USAT nationals are going to happen? You know, or do you think this race is going to happen? Boston's already moved. Um, you know, the vaccine news the other day, uh, this is November 11th. So uh, whatever that was two days ago, that's great. Um, you know, logistics are challenging and who knows how many people will actually take it. So hopefully that pans out well. People are able to, to get it and, and start incorporating that relatively soon. Uh, but my my gut instinct now and the planning that I'm doing with athletes is of the mindset that we just generally want you at a high level of fitness sometime after July next year. And that we're going to assume you're most likely to have significant or somewhat frequent racing happening again throughout the country after July, like August, September, October, probably. Um, could be wrong, but right now that's our, our planning is just sort of saying we're going to assume that and build around that. And if we have to adjust and change again, we adjust and change. We're talking with Will Carusis. He is the owner of TryHard. I think probably some of the best advice my dad ever gave me is when you, know, when you go for a job interview, you're not just interviewing for the job, you're interviewing them to make sure it's a job that you want. So in essence, every time you approach an athlete or an athlete approaches you, it's a two-way street. They need to see if you're a good fit for them. You need to see if you're if they're a good fit for you. Um, what are the types of athletes that, or what are the things you say, this is the type of athlete I work best with. And are there any red flags when an athlete contacts you, you know, and you say, yeah, I don't think I'm the right coach for you. Yeah. Um, it's funny. My ego wants to say everybody's a good, good athlete for me. Cause I, you know, cause I can, if I don't, if I, if it's somebody who is hard for me, then I have to try to figure that out. And that makes me, that makes me better on people who trend that way down the road. The reality, though, is that I, I am 
this is going to sound weird coming from a guy who works with triathletes. I'm probably not awesome for the hyper type A engineer types. Um, I have no problem with engineers. They're awesome. They're freaking smart. Um, but there's sort of a, sometimes there's a hyper, hyper outcome, overly analytic mindset. And I, I definitely trend um, artsy hippie. So like while I, while I, I like the science and I feel like the science needs to be a player in what I do and help me guide and understand things. Um, there's like a, a next level, a myopic level, maybe that's, that's, that sounds harsh. I don't like that. It, there's a, there's a level with the science where some, or with the data, I think where sometimes people become so blinded by numbers, they can't see reality. Right. They, like the overly simplistic analogy would just be like, how do you feel today? Right. I'm, I'm, I have yet to see evidence that there's much, that there's a, a, a tool that an athlete could have that can answer that question better than the athlete, like their true sense of how they feel. Some people that calibration is wonky. They haven't thought about it much, but for somebody with some experience, that question is incredibly valuable. It sounds like you've recognized that there is the science of coaching, but there's also the art. And if you have a potential yeah. client who thinks it's just science, you need to give me this much of a load and this much of recovery and Shazam, I'm going to get the performance I want. That's not my guy. That's not my guy. Um, matter that's actually, so my, my undergrad degree is, is sports science. My master's is actually coaching education. Um, and the reason I went that way is because I, you know, I, I was working in this field for a while. I'd worked clinically, but then I was working in this field, uh, as a coach. And what I could see was that sports science programs, at least then, maybe it's changed more recently, seem to be very focused on like, okay, you're going to, you're going to either go on to be a, a physical therapist. You're going to go into cardiac rehab. You're going to, maybe you're going to be an ATC. Um, you're going to care. You're going to get this sports science undergrad degree, and you're going to use that as sort of your step one to some other degree in the health field. Um, and at least when I was in that realm, there was very little, how do you actually teach people stuff involved? It was like, this is VO2 max. This is lactate threshold. This is, you know, here's some information about metabolism. This is general training theory, you know, training design, you know, all that kind of stuff. But there wasn't like, how do you actually teach other people stuff? How do you help them? Um, it was like, this is the information, but the people who were good coaches, good personal trainers, like I, I always remember being in college and there was a guy when I was doing an internship at a, a fitness center in that, in there. And, um, where I was doing an internship, he was the, uh, he was actually one of the personal trainers. He was an older guy, ex cop sort of feels like every gym has the ex cop personal trainer. Now that I say that, <laughs> but, but this guy was amazing. He, you know, you watch him, you'd watch the exercises he was doing. Right. And you kind of could be like, well, that seems a little basic. Like, couldn't you do something cooler? You know, couldn't you, you know, what are you, why aren't you thinking about this, that, or the other thing? And he's got this pretty basic routine that he's doing with most everybody, but dang, they were all improving and they loved him. They loved the work he was doing with them. They, they would have, they, you know, if he said do five more reps and you know, they were doing a, they were doing a 10 RM and they were at nine, they would have done five more reps. Um, I mean, it was, it was amazing watching him work with people. Tom, wish I could remember his last name. Uh, but it always struck me like what was different about that dude compared to the rest of us, so to speak, that were, you know, trying to be cutting edge and offer the latest and greatest. Uh, and I, looking back, I'm convinced it was his ability to communicate. 
you know, he could talk, he was that, he was that guy. He could talk to anybody about anything, anytime. Um, and it was, it was that, and he, he had understood how to communicate with people. And so I, to me, that's, you know, there are, it's that ability to communicate with people that ultimately drives coaching. Cause that's what it is, is teaching. That's made a little harder when you have distance already, right? Like I'm coaching people via distance. So, um, it's already a little harder because I don't get to see them. I'm not face to face. So I've got to be able to communicate with these people well. And while I'd like to say that I can adapt and adjust and morph and I can communicate well with anybody, I think there's truth to that when it comes down to like, uh, I need your help uh, with the kids lemonade sale for school or whatever. Right. But when it's trying to really help somebody change, develop and grow, I definitely have had a harder time with that sort of hyper analytical mindset. Just I, my, my brain wants to work from this sort of uh, softer, let's figure it out. Let's um, I want you like to me. So to me, for example, the idea of self-determination is really important as from an athlete development perspective, I can sit here and tell you a bunch of things about training that are going to help you improve. You may or may not like those. You may or may not buy into them. But if I can get you to understand that you're an equal player in this, it's not Will tells you what to do. It's you and Will work together to figure out what's best for you to do. It's you need to be able to, I need you, you're out there doing it, right? Like you're on the race course. Even if I was physically with them all the time, if they're out there on an on a ultra or out there in a, in a triathlon, whatever, mountain bike race, I can't be out there on the race course with them telling them what to do. They have to, when the, when the bullets are flying, they have to be able to make decisions. So I need them to have that sense of autonomy control. Uh, you know, I want them to have relatedness to me and I want them to have this sense of, of competence in the overall, in their overall development and growth. And they don't get that. If I just tell people what to do, or if I say two plus two equals four, because two plus two equals four, but we're such complex systems. And when you throw in the coaching relationship and distance and the open nature of endurance sports saying two plus two equals four is like, yeah, it does. But we're really talking more about like, two to the 97th power plus two to the 27th power, you know, like it's, it's crazy math. Um, so it's like, it's good. It's important. And the science needs to be there. But for me, it's about the, it's about the, that teaching part of it. Like how do we figure this stuff out and how do you take ownership in it so that when the bullets are flying, you can figure it out. Um, I, <clears throat> it's funny. I, a couple of years ago, uh, an athlete that I worked with, uh, you actually, you, you know, or knew her, Susie Snyder. Mm -hmm. Um, she won, uh, USA Xterra national championships. And I think that year she was third or fourth or fifth. I can't remember, at uh, world championships in Hawaii for Xterra. And, uh, maybe my favorite part of that experience, she was kind of in a comeback year that year. Um, when we were talking after nationals, it was her, her sense and this idea of like, you know, I, I, I was figuring it out out there. I was feeling it out and I was, you know, I was using this idea of like what's possible now. It was, you know, there, you start with the plan and then you start figuring it out while you're out there. And it was this idea, this openness to modifying and adjusting and being flexible and adaptable that helped her make the most of what she had on that day. And that's a message that I see repeated over and over again with people that I work with. It's if I, if everybody is just looking at their power meter 
or their heart rate monitor. And they're saying my functional threshold power is 227 watts. So I can't go over that or I, or I can't get this close to it or I have to stay in this proximity or whatever. It turns them into a robot and they're not, they're humans. And it's a very human experience to, to race and endurance sports. There's a lot of emotion and changes that happen. Having those numbers is valuable, but it's that understanding of how to adapt and flex with them that makes you good at what you're doing. That makes you able to race. Um, so I, that, I, that's a that's a wormhole that I could dive down really far. So I'm trying to stop myself now, but I, like that to me is just really valuable. And I, I so I think ultimately you can kind of see I'm I'm not. It feels like I'm not answering your exact question about like who I, who do I work with well and who do I not work with well. But I hopefully that kind of gets it across. I really I like that I, people who are really open to to that sort of approach to taking some on themselves to being open about it to having some exploration and how they approach it. Um, to being curious, I tend to do better with than someone who wants it to be hyper black and white or uber analytical. I uh, think you, I think you've answered in more depth than I was expecting, but that's, that's a, uh, a good thing. We're talking with Will Carusis. He is the owner of try hard and endurance coaching business. Will, I'll leave you with one more question before I let you go. Since I've taken a lot of your time, Looking back over your career, we're here in uh, November of 2020. Think back to maybe the November of the first year you were. If you could offer that person one piece of advice that you've learned over the 20 plus years, what would it be? Oh, God. You do not know anywhere near as much as you think you do. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's probably, I mean, yeah, that's for sure. Not even close. I, like, man, oh. I think that could be a t-shirt that could, that could sell thousands, if not millions, <laughs> millions of, uh, of them. Will Carusis, owner of Try Hard, we will have extensive show notes on this. Will, I want to thank you for taking time to talk to, to Moving to Live. Tell us your story and your philosophy of coaching endurance athletes. Ben, it was super fun. Appreciate you reaching out and uh, you know, really uh, excited to take part in this. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.